We thank thee, O God, our Father, that thou hast given us redemption from our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord, and that that redemption is total and complete, that it works on our minds and our hearts, and that in redeeming us, thou hast also redeemed our culture and arts and sciences. Help us as Christians to make contributions in the right way in this direction so that we who have been given so much and of whom so much will be required may be able to give a good account of our stewardship, of our talents and our possessions and the place on this planet that thou hast given us to live. Help us to remember that this is your world and this is your earth, and that we are to work under your supervision. Forgive us for the misuse of it, and grant that we may faithfully discharge our responsibilities to thee and our work with it. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the work of the Church of Jesus Christ. We thank Thee that Thou hast given us the Church where we may have fellowship with one another, and where we may feed upon Thy Word, and where we may encourage one another in the things that pertain unto the Lord. Because we want the blessings of Christ and His Church to be extended to the very ends of the earth, we are glad to bring a part of our material possessions and place them here and pray that you will direct in their use to the end that they may bring glory unto thy name and the gospel unto many people. This prayer we make in Jesus' name, amen. Not long ago, a splendid columnist for a newspaper asked this question rhetorically of a group of ministers, and he got a reply from one minister. The question was this, what does the average Christian minister see as he steps out in back of his pulpit on Sunday morning and looks into the faces of his congregation? A gifted writer, Dr. Armand C. Olson, replied with these words, Sunday after Sunday, as he steps into the pulpit, the truly Christian minister sees men and women whose problems he knows. He sees those who placed a loved one in an open grave last Thursday. He sees those who will have an operation next Tuesday. He sees those who are grateful for the arrival of a new baby three weeks ago. He sees those who are inexpressibly happy because they're going to be married just a month from next Sunday. He sees those who wept in his office on Friday as they confessed ashamedly, we have sinned. He sees those who are living in a country far from righteous, wasting the precious things of life, and who have, have not yet seen the sin or the folly of their ways. He sees a husband and wife who have been quarreling and whose co home has become a virtual corner of hell. He sees a husband and wife whose marriage is like a little bit of heaven on earth. He sees a father and a mother deeply concerned about a wayward son. He sees another father and mother rightly proud of a wholesome, upright son or daughter 
a family happily seated together in church. Under, under God, the Christian minister tries to bring to each of them a word of consolation, of hope, of cheer, of counsel, of guidance, of courage, and of rebuke from God's own book, the Bible. The task of the radio preacher is even considerably broader than this because the problems affect so many more people. I thought of this this morning as this service is being taken into seven states. Think of the people who are in prison camps or the people who are in hospitals of all different kinds. Think of the forgotten people who are old and feeble and unable to attend church anymore. Take a, think about people who have done things of which they are terribly ashamed and are in the clutches of habits that they cannot break, whose eyes are red and swollen with weeping, who have not been in a house of God in so long that they would be ashamed to go now. And what will the minister say, and how will he preach? It is about one of those problems that every last one of us faces sooner or later that I wish to speak this morning. I call my sermon A View from the Back of the Hearse. The reason that I say that is that as a Christian minister I have over the last 15 years, ridden in the car just next to the hearse on the way to the cemetery many a time. Sometimes I'm accompanied by another minister who will take part in the service. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes when I look in the back of that hearse and I see a coffin, a great many thoughts flood through my mind because I know a lot of doctors if it has been a tragic death. I began to think about the person and how that death might have been prevented if only this or that had been done. Then I really began to think how that person stood with God. The first time I ever seen him when they brought his coffin into the church for his burial. Am I just going to hear those same old platitudes? Well, he lived a full life. So what? What do you think about when you ride in back of a hearse? And you look at a little bit of clay that's going to go into a raw open grave. And then the dirt will be shoveled on top of it. And you'll take a handful of it. And you'll throw it out earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and steadfast hope of the resurrection from the dead, a resurrection that operates two ways, a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of those who are not redeemed. What do you think about it? What's that view from the back of the hearse mean to you? Oh, we try to hide this business of death. We live in the sex generation. Everyone talks about sex. You see it on the front pages of the papers. You see it on magazines. You hear people glibly chattering about it all the time, every place you go, it seems. But bring up the subject of death. And right away, you see a silence. People don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They use all of the cosmetics that they can in the funeral home to make you forget about it. They have a grief therapist in large cities that the funeral director will send around to you to talk about it if you don't seem to be able to shake it. 
As a Christian minister, I have noted what many other people have noted in death, that there is always that initial phase of shock that comes to a person. There is always a loss of enjoyment. I can never forget as a little boy, five years old, when one of the dearest people in the world, my grandfather, died. And all the ladies in the church brought food over to the house. And the funny thing was that I would have been very happy to have eaten that food any other time, but I didn't feel hungry then. There was a loss of enjoyment. The things that normally would have pleased me did not please me in that time of shock. And then there comes the feeling of guilt that floods over you. I wish that I had done things differently. If only I had not said this, or I look back to the time when I didn't do this. And a close ally of guilt, something that always runs around with guilt, is hostility. Then you begin to be angry. Angry at yourself. Angry at God. Angry at the circumstances of life. I've learned a long time ago never to be surprised by what people say in the initial shock of the news of someone's death. Don't hold them really accountable for what they say then because they're really beside themselves in that moment. And then there is the resistance that always comes, resistance to change. What am I going to do without him? What am I going to do without her? How can life go on? And you look outside and you see the cars going down the street and you think they're stupid cars. How can they drive? How can people keep on living? Why will the sun go down tonight and come up tomorrow morning and the stars are out? Why doesn't everything cease and stop? And there is resistance to it because you stagger and reel under the impact of that shock that's come. One of our dearest friends just a few weeks ago telephoned from Washington, D.C. She used to be a secretary in the White House, wonderful Christian lady. She was in the house preparing her Sunday school lesson for the next morning in the Baptist church in Alexandria, Virginia. Her husband, E.A., was out in the yard mowing lawn on Saturday afternoon. Neighbor came in and said, Mary Jo, something's wrong with E.A. She went out in the yard. E.A. was dead. He had a heart attack, fell over. He was gone, just like that. The tremendous shock comes. I remember once early in my ministry going to a hospital in Georgia. I'd been called by some parents that their son, who was at Georgia Tech, had been in an accident and was taken to a hospital. And they said, would you go and be with him until we can get there? It was about a five-hour drive. I went as quickly as I could to the hospital, and when I got there, I, I went downstairs to the information place and asked where Dickie Woodward was. They said, he's still in surgery. And I said, in surgery? What's he doing in surgery? They said, we had to amputate his right hand. I went upstairs and waited outside the surgical room. A fine nurse came out to me and she said, we've been holding him in the recovery room. He's coming to now. 
She said, I'm glad that you got here. You're his minister, aren't you? I said, yes. And she said, could you please tell him that his hand is gone? I went inside the room. He hadn't gotten to the room yet in the hospital. I went inside the room and got down on my knees by the bed, and I said, oh, God, keep me from saying something stupid. Help me to say the right thing. And then here came the stretcher down the hall, the cart that they pushed them on, and it came into the room, and they offloaded him onto the bed. I stood there holding the, the good hand that he had, looking at a big bunch of bandages on the other hand. And I thought, how can I, how can I say this? I said, Dickie, let's pray. I said, a brief little prayer. People can't take long prayers in a time like that. When I finished the prayer, I opened my eyes and looked at his eyes. He smiled. And he said, you don't have to tell me it's gone. I said, I know it. But he knew that it'd be all right because he was trusting in the Lord. Well, you know what I did for a few days after that? I decided that in order to try to go through and to feel sympathetic with Dickie, I would try to operate with just one hand, just my left hand. It was his right hand that was taken. So I remember trying to tie my tie with one hand and trying to put my shoes on and get them together with one hand, trying to eat with one hand. Now, that's what it feels like. You know, when I went to see him, he used to say, it's crazy, but the thing scratches. I want to scratch where my hand is, and I'll reach to get something, and there's no hand there. That's a lot the way it is when death comes. That initial shock is so great, that loss of enjoyment is so pronounced, that guilt and hostility is there, wishing that we had done things differently, and that resistance to change moves in so forcefully that something is gone, and we just can't adjust to it very rapidly. And here let me make a point of saying this. I have been asked to preach this sermon. Many of us do very stupid things when someone dies. Only yesterday I was reading about one woman, a fine Christian woman, whose little boy had died. A dumb evangelist came to the house and said to her, Well, have you got the victory over his death yet? Now that's sick. Jesus wept. And there's nothing wrong with showing grief at a time like that. So remember that. You can show some grief when something like this happens, and you do not have to be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of that. Jesus wept. And furthermore, in another place, Paul says, Rejoice with them that rejoice. We remember that part of the verse. But he also says, Weep with those who weep. That comes into play, too. And it's easy to talk about things when we really have not experienced them. And then when we've gone that way with sorrow and with trouble, when we've suffered some ourselves and seen the loss of those whom we love, perhaps we're not so glib in what we say to someone else. Have you gotten the victory over it yet? God gives you a victory. But it may not be a glib victory, 
and it does not come to all people in just the same way. And that's why I wanted to read this remarkable passage of Scripture today from the 11th chapter of John. Here is a man whom Jesus loved, whose name was Lazarus, a familiar, intimate friend. Word comes to Jesus from Martha and Mary. Your friend is sick, very sick. It's interesting that Jesus would know immediately what they were talking about just as much as if someone called you and your wife answered the phone and said, Hey, honey, your friend wants you. And you'd know that this is a special friend. He whom you love is sick. Jesus said an interesting thing. He said to his disciples that this sickness was not unto death but unto the glory of God that God can take even tragedy and heartache and turn it into his glory, bring some sense to the suffering that we have to go through in this life. This illness is not meant to end in death. It is going to bring glory to God. That was not only said about Lazarus' illness, but it is said about your illness too, and the illness of those whom you love. Because that verse in Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And if you really believe that, you can see that this illness is to the glory of God, for it will show forth the glory of the Son of God. Then notice some of the reactions that we talked about a while ago as they come into play. Jesus goes where... Martha and Mary are. And it's interesting that Martha and Mary say identically the same thing. This means that they must have been talking about this over in the east in Palestine. The climate is so terribly hot that a person is buried on the very day in which he dies. And so Lazarus had been buried the same day that he died and Jesus had delayed two days getting there so it was four days in all. And Jesus arrived there, and the people were weeping. It's interesting the way in which people go through death. We, uh, in this part of the world, don't go through the ritual or experience that these people went through. They had mourners, and they showed emotion. And so there was weeping that took place there. Martha, Martha, bless her heart, Martha ran out to where Jesus was, and she met him. And she said an interesting thing. She said, if only you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. Now, I think I read a little bit of resentment in that. Martha said, we sent word to you. Why didn't you come? If you had been here, you could have stopped this. Do you see that? I think it's there. If only you had been here, Lord, my brother never would have died. But then she went on to say, and I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask from him. Your brother will rise again, Jesus replied. I know, said Martha, that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And then Jesus becomes very specific. And here he utters what I believe to be the greatest verse in the Bible. He said, Martha... I am the resurrection and the life. 
not only the resurrection out there in the future, but the resurrection right now. Not only the life out there in the future, but the life right now. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. The man who believes in me will live even though he dies. And anyone who is alive and believes in me will never die at all. Can you believe that? Let me ask that question of you. Can you believe that? So often the kids come to me with a question, what's it all about, man? What's life all about? Here it is. Life is meant to be lived in Christ. Life is meant to be lived in Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection and the life. Our Baptist friends immerse when they come to the sacrament of baptism, only they call it an ordinance. And the reason that they do is based partly upon a simile, a metaphor, a figure, a, a, an allegory, an illustration of what they believe the Christian life to be. They believe that a person before he is converted, and they have great scriptural warrant for this, they believe that he is dead in trespasses and in sins, and that when he becomes a Christian, when he is converted, when he is given over to faith in Jesus Christ, that he is buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised again to a new life. And it's a right good analogy buried with him in baptism and raised again in a new life, and we're supposed to live a new life. The resurrection and the life, said Jesus, here and now as well as in the future. And the life that you're living now ought to be lived in such a way that death does not hold for you that fear because Christ is living in you, and that life, that life will never die. Jesus said to Martha, can you believe that? Let me ask you the question, can you believe it? Yes, Lord, said Martha. I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God. Can you say that and mean it? The one who was come into the world. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And have you been resurrected into a new life in him? If you have, then there is great hope that is brought to you. Great hope that comes from this passage of Scripture, even when sorrow comes. You know, it's instinctive in man to want to live on. It's abnormal not to believe in an existence after this life. You have to fight it out of your mind. They've never found a tribe. No anthropologist has ever found a tribe anywhere in the world no matter how primitive, who did not have some idea of a continuation of existence. And yet, you see, we have allowed our advertising, our busyness, our obsession with pleasure and power to absorb so much of our thinking that we act as though life will go on forever in this life. And we do not want to think about death and life in the way in which Jesus teaches it here. Did you ever read the epitaph of Benjamin Franklin? It says this, Here lies the body of Ben Franklin, 
printer. His body lies here like an old book whose binding is broken and whose pages are torn, food for the worms. But it is his hope that one day it shall reappear in a new and a more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Here is a place where we get that revision and correction, not just in the world to come, but right now in this life when we are raised to newness of life in Christ. I've never seen this principle about resurrection and the life here and now illustrated any more beautifully than in that marvelous old book that many of you have heard me refer to again and again beside the bonnie briar bush. It's a book written about church life in Scotland back in a time when there were deep mystics who loved God with all of their hearts and minds and souls. And in it is told the story of an elder in a Presbyterian church. That session was quite a session in that church. There were six members of the session. There were three small farmers, a sheep herder, a stonemason, and a tailor. One of these men was Donald Menzies, an elder in that church. And people used to watch Donald Menzies, especially on the day in which the Lord's Supper was celebrated because they said that his face was transfigured because of the reality of what it meant to be redeemed by the grace of God and to be in union with God in communion and fellowship with the risen living Christ. And a young minister who came to know Donald Menzies well spoke of having gone to his home to visit with him and commenting about his faith in Christ and how deep it was. And though he could not comprehend it all, he admired Donald Menzies' deep faith in Christ. And so he asked him one day how it was that he became a Christian. And as the Scots put it, so far been, far been in the things of the Lord. And Donald Menzies replies this way. He said, it was not always so with me as it is to this day. For once I had no ear for God's voice and my eyes were holden that I could not see the spiritual world. But sore sickness came upon me, and I was nigh unto death, and my soul awoke within me and began to cry like a child for its mother. All my days I had lived on Loch Tay, that's a beautiful lake in the Highlands, and now I thought of the other country into which I would have to be going, and where I would find no rest, and my soul would be driven to and fro in the darkness like a bird on the moor of Rannoch a dark, dreary moor. Janet, his wife. Janet sent for the minister, and he was very kind, and he spoke about my sickness and about my farm, and I said nothing. For I was hoping that he would tell me what I was to do for my soul, but he began to talk about the sheep and the market in Amlory, a nearby town. And then I knew that the minister was also in the dark. After he left, I turned my face to the wall and wept. 
Next morning was the Sabbath, and I said to Janet, Wrap me in my plaid and take me to Aberfeldy, a nearby town. And what will you be doing in Aberfeldy? You will die on the road. There is, said I, a man there who knows the ways of the soul. And if I am going to die, it is better for me to die with my face to the light. They set me in a corner of the kirk, and I was thinking that no man could see me. And I cried in my heart without ceasing, Lord, send me a word from thy mouth. And when the minister came into the pulpit, he gave me a strange look, and this was his text. It was from the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. Loose him and let him go free. And as that minister preached, I knew that I was Lazarus with the darkness of the grave around me and my soul straightly bound. I could do nothing, but I was longing with all of my strength to be free. And then the minister stopped and he said, There is a man in this church and he will know himself who he is. And when I came in this morning, I saw the shadow on his face and I did not know whether it was a shadow of the angel of death or the angel of life passing over him. But God has made it plain to me, and I see the silver feathers of the covenant of the angel of grace, and this is a sign unto that man. Loose him and let him go free. And while he was still speaking, I felt my soul carried into the light of God's face, my grave clothes were taken off one by one as Janet would unwind my plaid, and I stood a living man in the presence of Christ. It was a sweet June day as we drove home from church. I lay in the sunshine and all the birdies that sang and the brook by the roadside and the rustling of the birch leaves in the wind and, oh yes, the horses' feet on the road were all saying over and over again to me, Loose him and let him go free. The analogy is scripture, and it's true. And if you are afraid of death, and if you are bound in sin, and if the life of God is not already in your soul, then the words which Jesus spoke with a loud voice of victory to Lazarus come forth are words that are spoken to you. And though you may come forth weak, with some of the garments of sin still dangling from your body. He'll take those away too, and he speaks to you these words. Loose him and let him go free. The great playwright tells that Lazarus became a great preacher of the gospel after this first resurrection of his. He goes preaching the gospel into a part where the Roman Empire had forbidden the gospel to be preached, and they told him not to preach it anymore. This is the way the legend goes. And Lazarus just kept right on preaching, and so they arrested him, and when they were ready to execute him and put him to death, they said to him, Aren't you afraid to die? And the words that Lazarus speaks are the title of the play. Let us stand in prayer.
Oh God, our Father, when sorrow comes, help us to understand that we are not being singled out for affliction just to be tortured or to, made miser to be made miserable. But help us to understand that there are some lessons that we human beings cannot learn any other way. We really would not yearn for heaven if earth held only joy. And so help us to understand that sorrow and trouble and affliction, that life and death and all the things that come our way are meant to be our teachers to help us to place more faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to live lives that are freed from sin, new lives that show forth his love. We thank thee for his answer to the great question, if a man die, shall he live again? And that that answer is yes, that we may live again in him. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be all glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore.